0: Mel. sous i
1: Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Friday. I knew I'd get it right eventually. Friday, Erev Shabbos. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. We are in our nine days format, and that means, of course, the centerpiece of our spoken word format is Rabbi Beryl Wine. We get an opportunity to, um, uh, to hear from Rabbi Wine and to um, uh, check out his uh, uh, brilliant lectures uh, they're available by the way at one 800 499 eight499wein18 there we go one 800 eight499 or rabbiwine.com rabbiwine.com and um, we're actually ready to conclude a really amazing series. the series is entitled the lecture series is entitled the United States and its Jews. The fourth of the 4th par- four-part series is called Declining Jewish Society, Assimilation, and Intermarriage. It is that lecture that kicks off our Friday of Shabbos. A reminder, my uh, father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, delivered 26 years ago last night at the Shloshim of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. We're going to play that at 7.15. Harry Rothenberg with Parsha Shavua, Rabbi Yudin with Parsha Shavua, and the weekly update, Malcolm Homeline coming up at 7.40 a.m. Eastern time right here. At JM in the AM.
2: Enjoy. To a great extent, uh, the last half of the 20th century uh, was the golden age of American jewelry. That does not necessarily mean that the golden age has completely ended, but it certainly is changing. And uh, American Jewry, I'm talking generally. People last week asked me why I didn't uh, mention certain specific organizations and uh, personages. Um, This is uh, an overview. It's not a detailed uh, history at all. So you'll forgive me. If I omit everyone, so then no one is hurt. (laughs) American Jewry, from uh, the end of the Second World War uh, till the 1990s, uh, was built, again, general American Jewry. I'm not talking about the yeshiva world. I'm not talking about the Hasidic world. I'm not even talking about the modern Orthodox world per se. But 80% then, maybe today it's different, but 80% then of American Jewry was not in the yeshiva world, was not in the Hasidic world, was not in the Orthodox world. So what were the pillars of Jewish life that sustained them? that made them Jewish, uh, that somehow uh, gave content to the American Jewish community. So there were three pillars, in my opinion, uh, that have to be examined. One was the Holocaust. Uh, The Holocaust uh, remains the elephant in the room. It remains the uh, most studied subject and the most taboo subject in the Jewish world. Therefore, it's interesting that in many Jewish schools in the United States, it, uh, it's not taught. You can go uh, 12 years of Jewish education in uh, schools in the United Jewish schools, very Jewish schools, and not hear a word said. The reasons for this are uh, many. But the most obvious reason is because the Holocaust raises many more problems than it solves. It's a a great theological problem. It's a great problem of faith. And it flies in the face of all human logic. Uh, All history classes uh, deal with human logic. Causes and effects, why certain things happened What was the proximate cause? What was the far distant cause? What was the result? Why did it happen? Who was responsible, etc., etc.? The Holocaust does not fit into any of that template. We have no answers to the question. So therefore, many have chosen never to ask the questions. How did God let this happen? Whose fault was it? Because Jews are people who love to know whose fault it is. And most of the time, it's our fault.
3: <laughs>
2: There's this nature within us that, that the victim is uh, the guilty party. We see it portrayed here in Israel. All the problems in the Middle East, it's us. If we only bum, 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 then all the problems would disappear. When uh, most of the problems have nothing to do with us. It's part of our conceit. A part of our arrogance that we think, uh, you know, it's all because of us. So therefore, uh, one reaction to the Holocaust, and even the reaction of many, if not most of the survivors, for a number of decades was not to talk about it, not to raise the issue, not to ask, not to tell, and then a great change occurred. I think part of the change was because of people like Wiesel and others that began to write about it. Wiesel wrote his great book Night, which I still think is probably the most powerful book about the Holocaust experience. Uh, The uh, other works were written. Martin Gilbert wrote a uh, very, very great book called The Holocaust. And then you had Deborah Lipstadt and you had others that wrote about it. Now, as I can tell you, uh, writing about it and people reading it are two different matters. But it began to penetrate. It was a small book written by a French Jew called Treblinka, which uh, I read uh, in the 1960s. And uh, which gave me uh, uh, a decade of horror, because it it's not just a description, but it raised all of the issues. And I think only six or eight people survived there. Three hundred thousand were killed in the, in a few months, and these were great Jews. Hasidic uh, Rebbe's, uh, Russia Yeshiva, babies, people for whom we have no easy answers. So then there began an industry in America, in American Jewish life. That industry is the Holocaust industry. It raises a tremendous amount of money even today. The Punavi Rav told me. that, would, that he was going to make a Holocaust memorial in Ponovich Yeshiva, which he did, the Oel Gedoshim. But the Oel the Yeshiva has expanded so much that the Oel Gedoshim is no longer the Oel Gedoshim, it's part of the Beish Medrash. But he told me openly he said, uh, if I go to people and I tell them I'm making the Oel Gedoshim, I'm making the hall in memory of the Holocaust. People give me money, if I go to them, I tell them I'm making a yeshiva, what do we need it for? And therefore it became an industry. And as part of the industry, we're Holocaust museums. Now the Holocaust museums, Yad Vashem is the originator probably of it. The Yad Vashem is not nearly as graphic as For instance, the National Holocaust Museum in Washington, which is the third largest tourist attraction in Washington, D.C. And it's not from Jews. And the same thing, uh, the Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles has its Holocaust Museum. I think they call it the Museum of Tolerance. And also, uh, hundreds of thousands, if not more, go through its doors. Public schools uh, arrange trips. Everybody comes. But Holocaust museums send mixed messages because the central issue is never answered. And therefore... uh, There's a limit to how many rooms of hair and of shoes and of suitcases you can see. After a while, you become immune to that as well. Just as the perpetrators of the Holocaust in the death camps became immune to what they were doing. They lived normal lives. you know, they got done uh, killing people in the day they went home to their wives at night. They had supper. Played soccer. Got up in the morning and killed some more people. So it has a numbing effect. But that became one of the focal points of American Jewry, to Remember. And American Jewry coined phrases, never again. We're not going to let it happen again, as though we have the power to, God forbid, prevent it. And uh, only people who feel that it can happen again say never again, right? You don't hear the non-Jewish world say never again. It's our slogan. But the Holocaust was, was a, an overriding psychological trauma on American Jewry. And much of it was because there was a great sense of guilt that American Jewry didn't do anything about it. That somehow we were so powerless that we let it happen. So I mentioned last time that, you know, there was this uh, demonstration in 1943 by 300 Orthodox rabbis on the steps of the Capitol. But that demonstration, again, as I mentioned, was opposed by American Jewry. They felt it was unpatriotic. Roosevelt told them he's going to take care of it, so then what are you doing? You don't believe in Roosevelt? And to the Jewish world in the 1940s, early 1940s, I grew up then. Roosevelt was, if not God, certainly one of the angels. And now, when it was revealed that... Uh, the angels had clay feet Uh, so then that was a great disappointment but American Jewry never knew how to deal with it never knew what to do about it and those who spoke about it were roundly criticized I remember my teacher, Professor Eliezer Berkovitz, uh, blessed memory whom I studied with in Chicago. Later, he was here in Israel, and he was a, he was a, a philosopher, a historian. He was a a man of great thought, great talent. I had to forgive him for being Hungarian, but otherwise... Oh. Uh, <laughs> but he went to Germany. He went to Hildesheimer Seminary but an interest variant. So he wrote a book, uh, not a book, a pamphlet... That I read in uh, the late 1950s. And that pamphlet, I reread it maybe 50 times. It was about 60 pages long. And it was about uh, the uh, post Christian world that the Holocaust marked the end of Christianity. It had run its course. And he said the church was morally bankrupt and that the murderers were all Christians and that they were willing abettors to the uh, horrors of the Holocaust. I cannot describe to you the flack that he took because that was un-American. In America, everybody is good. Until our time, it, it was like that. Now we know that half of America is evil. But when I grew up, everybody was good. So you couldn't speak against the church. And you couldn't speak against any of those things. And you couldn't say uh, bad things about the Pope. You just couldn't. And the more the Holocaust became discussed, and the more these writings came out, the more confused Jewish America became. Because all of a sudden it dawned upon many American Jews that intrinsically remaining Jewish is a dangerous profession. So, indirectly, the Holocaust and the knowledge of the Holocaust proved to be a spur to assimilation. Because who wants to raise children that uh, that they're going to be, uh, you know? God forbid! Who knows what's going to happen to them? So you have subtle changes in Jewish life. Names change. It's not. It's not. Uh, not fitting to give Jewish names. So non-Jewish names became the Jewish names. It's ironic that uh, when you uh, meet somebody who's named Jeffrey, you automatically assume he's Jewish. Because his parents didn't want to name him Yaakov. So that morphed. Bernard, there are all sorts of names like that. I remember that when I uh, attended public school, so one of my, uh, I think in third grade, hard to believe I was once in third grade, but, uh, <laughs> but I was outstanding then as well.
3: <laughs>
2: so the teacher came to my home, to my parents' home, and she said, you know, he should re- you should really change his first name. She called him Bernard. Why do you want to inflict on him that all of his life he should be called Beryl? And my mother, who was a very uh, strong woman and who had a great influence upon me, said, he'll do all right, this Beryl. I'm not worried. And she threw her out. but there were plenty of Jewish children on my block that changed their Jewish names (laughs) because of this negative, negative psychological burden. Now, in the yeshiva, where I had uh, rabbin teachers, who had gone through the Holocaust. They taught us to be proud. Uh, I had one teacher that he began every class that we recited, Shreinu Matov Chalkenu, how happy we are, who we are, what we are, etc., etc. And he had a number on his arm. I didn't. Uh, I was. Uh, I didn't grasp the full uh, import of all of that until much later in life. The rabbis teach us that you don't appreciate a uh, a teacher until forty years have passed. That's why all these lectures are recorded. <laughs> But uh, I I look back at it. What a remarkable thing! What? What? Look what he did! And I saw that from the Satmarov when he was in Miami Beach. That somebody approached him uh, after uh, the uh, Shachrit service, and he asked him for a blessing. And the Rebbe said to him, you see that Jew there who has a number on his arm and it's wrapped with filling, go ask him for a blessing. So that was a different attitude, but that was not the general attitude of American Jewry. And the more museums and the more books, the greater the impetus was never again and we got to get out of this and that somehow we contributed to it because we're different we didn't integrate into European society we were communists I heard all of this and that's frightening and it remains so until today So, the Holocaust had a great deal to do with American Jewry's current conditions. The second pillar was the complete opposite, was the creation of the State of Israel. I don't think that it's an exaggeration to say that the state of Israel saved the Jewish people in the second half of the 20th century. It uh, gave the Jewish world a focal point and it enlisted positive action. People were inspired to try and help it. And there was a period of time about uh, I think, till 1956, till the Sinai campaign. The first, uh, really, ten years from 1946 when the struggle began. Uh, That was the golden age for the state of Israel in the eyes of American Jewry. So then, American Jewry rallied to the side of the state of Israel. Even though the state of Israel then was far more leftist than it has ever been since, and it was far more secular than it ever has been since, but that none of that made a difference. I remember in 1948 when the state was declared. So uh, it was declared on Friday afternoon. I remember walking to shul with my father. My father, who was a Lithuanian Jew, wept every step of the way. I didn't know what he was crying about. So that Sunday evening, the Zionist organization in Chicago had a rally in the Chicago Stadium, which later would be made Famous by Michael Jordan, (laughs) and Golda Meir was in America then raising money. She had a parlor meeting. the The Jewish Mafia made a parlor meeting for her. Now, when the Mafia makes a parlor meeting, it's successful. (laughs) You got an invitation. You came, and you brought an envelope. And the Jewish gangsters were proud to be Jews. And they arranged uh, with their uh, non-Jewish confederates who controlled uh, the docks in New York and Philadelphia and San Francisco, the longshoremen. And even though the American government forbade the shipment of arms to Israel, uh, somehow the arms got there. So at that rally there were 20,000 people inside the stadium and there were another 20,000 people outside in the parking lot. I remember all of my rabbin from the yeshiva went even though none of them were Zionists. And uh, the program began with the raising of the Israeli flag to the rafters of the Chicago Stadium. And 40,000 people wept, wept uncontrollably for minutes and minutes on end. The whole 2,000 years poured out. Then I I was still young, but I uh, had opinions already if it would have been up to me, I said to the, uh, my friend from the yeshiva who was, who was next to me, I said it was up to me, I would say, no program, let's all go, go home. That's it. Because everything else is going to be anticlimactic, which it was. All the speeches and everything it was, you know, speeches. So uh, the state of Israel offered American Jewry, a moment of redemption. Redemption from not doing anything in the Holocaust. Redemption from changing their first names. Redemption from driving on Shabbos. Redemption from the whole process that was going to affect them. And therefore they rallied to it because instinctively they realized that this was a chance for them, a chance for them to be Jewish. And Ben-Gurion came to uh, Chicago in 1952, uh, launching the Israel bond drive. So there was a banquet uh, dinner in the uh, Stevens Hotel, which then was uh, the major hotel, It was (laughs) pre-Trump. And uh, I remember that, again, my rebellion went to the banquet. They didn't eat. They stood in the back. And I remember standing with them and uh, people lined up to give him money, to buy bonds. I think the minimum was $5,000, which then was a lot of money. And there was a line, I mean, and he was there for an hour, an hour and a half, shaking hands, you know, and everybody... Was so the next day in the shear, in the class, so one of us brave souls asked the Rebbe, what did he think about the Ben-Gurion and the, the whole thing? You know, ben was, to put it mildly, uh, not uh, the greatest pious Jew. So we thought, uh, now we're going to hear it, right? We want I mean, we, like, we're going to egg him on that he's going to... So he said, you know what I thought when I was there? He said, I thought, look at the children of Avraham Avinu lining up to give money. What a sight. I remember that until today. The children of Avraham Avinu. Because he realized that was a redemptive moment. That was a moment when they were the children of Avraham Avinu. And therefore, that became a pillar of Jewish life. We were going to have bond drives. We were going to have the UJA. The Israelis always came to collect money. The government came, everything. And we even began then to start to lobby the United States government to be more friendly because they were not. The Eisenhower administration and John Foster Dulles We're not our friends. And then in 1956, (laughs) Israel conducted the Sinai campaign. And American Jewry was shocked because Jews aren't supposed to be aggressive. What do you mean you invaded Egypt? what do you mean you're sitting at the Suez Canal? that's not Jewish and when Eisenhower and the Russians forced Israel to withdraw and set in motion the whole thing that's still going on Gaza and uh, the whole shebang that's still going on Hasn't changed a bit since 1956. 63 years, but it's all the same. American Jewry was conflicted. He could not be against American foreign policy because that would raise the specter of disloyalty. But how do you swallow this Jewish state that somehow no longer has the exile mentality and is not willing to roll over and be destroyed? So I remember that there were reform rabbis. The reform basically was anti-Zionist from its inception, very much so. But uh, the Holocaust temporarily put a break upon uh, their public statements. But after the Sinai campaign, that break was removed. And for the first time you heard rabbis say Israel is wrong. Shouldn't have done it. It's not moral. Because we all know that only outsiders are the correct judges and arbiters of morality. So there began a deterioration in the support for the state of Israel. Not only that, the state of Israel was poor needed money, so uh, to a certain extent the American Jewry began to feel put upon. Individuals came, organizations came, the government came, and he started to have political pressure in Washington to include the state of Israel in all sorts of appropriation bills and there were Jews that said, why should the American taxpayer have to pay money to support the State of Israel? Then, the the Six-Day War happened. So the month before the Six-Day War, when Nasser was going to throw us all into the sea. American Jewry believed it because they had this (coughs) Psychological fixation of the holocaust So we didn't know what to do the truth is no one knew what to do People literally walked around in a daze I remember I was around Miami Beach People came to the shul and sat there all day. These are people who owned stores. Who had jobs. They just came to the shul. They didn't even pray. They came to the shul and sat. Because look what's going to happen. And then when the astounding victory happened... There never was such a feeling of euphoria in American Jewish life as then. And a lot of things happened then. After Israel won, you were able to wear a kippah in the street and there was no problem. and you were able to be a Jew, and you were able to say, I want this job, and I want that job, and I'm entitled, and I don't want to be discriminated against, and Jews are not a minority anymore. All of that was a product of the Six-Day War. It reinvigorated American Jewry. But again, that didn't last. Because again, Israel did not fit the template of the perfect state that American Jewry wanted it to be. It's not nice to rule over the Arabs. It's not nice to knock down all the buildings in front of the Kotel. And then when the Yom Kippur War occurred, and that was really the most dangerous war, except for the War of Independence that Israel fought. (coughs) American Jewry was divided as to what should be done. And there began there two separate streams, completely opposite to each other. One stream is to make peace at any cost. Nothing nothing should stand in the way. Whatever peace the Arabs are willing to give, we should accept. You hear echoes of that today as well. And the other extreme was, now we're going to settle the whole land, we're going to kick out all the Arabs, we're going to have uh, the original Jewish state with its original boundaries, et cetera, et cetera. And these two streams still exist. But in the eyes of American Jewry, uh, peace. Because if Israel is at peace with the Arabs, the American Jewry has no problems with its conscience. There's it no uh, conflicts. Good, I'm a good American, I'm a good Jew, I'm, a, I'm for Israel. You see, Israel is the nicest place in the world everybody loves it but then it turned out that Israel is uh, subject to all the United Nations resolutions and is subject to all of the discrimination and this has been going on for 50 years so American Jewry is uncomfortable very uncomfortable you have that in the United States today, you have J Street, you know, and you have APAC, and you have others, it's all conflicted. And then the third pillar was the Soviet Jewry. again, driven by the two other
3: pillars.
2: (coughs) Was driven by the Holocaust. We were quiet during the Holocaust. We didn't do anything then. And now we have uh, uh, millions of our brethren behind the Iron Curtain who are subject to discrimination and not allowed freedom to immigrate. And this was a positive way to support the state of Israel. Because American Jewry expected and pushed that the Russian Jews should go to Israel. And this created uh, very strong undercurrent within American Jewry to support Soviet Jews. Now the official line by the leadership of American Jewry was not to do anything. Not to rock the boat, we're in the middle of the Cold War. American foreign policy with Russia and with the East should not be affected by Jewish issues. And uh, again, it made Jews uncomfortable because why should Soviet Jewry be a political issue in the United States? Where, for instance, the Armenians are not a political issue or the Georgians or the Uzbekans or everybody else that's having a hard time in Russia. But uh, there were Jews that were determined to raise the issue of Soviet Jewry. And again, I mentioned I, I knew great rabbis in the United States who objected to the push for Soviet Jews. They said, you're making the situation worse. Which was the typical... Attitude in the 18th and 19th century regarding all matters of Jews in Eastern Europe. Don't make waves. And uh, there was a split in the Orthodox community regarding it. I remember it very well. But th- this undercurrent, there were Jews that risked a lot. They started to smuggle... Uh, Jewish artifacts into the Soviet Union. Rabbi Tights uh, through political influence with senators, uh, and the State Department, the uh, Soviet Union allowed uh, sidurim, prayer books, to be brought in by tourists. So it said, for tourists only. But every tourist left the prayer book in the Soviet Union. You didn't come out with it. I, just as a personal aside, uh, people from uh, Muncie who traveled to the Soviet Union on these, ish- on these uh, missions, and the KGB knew about it, and they threw you out in two days or three days after giving me a hard time so they smuggled in an entire series of my history tapes (laughs) and I remember years later I met a Russian Jew and he said to me, you know, we listened to all of your history tapes and it was of immense value to us not because of the content, but we wanted to learn English. (laughs) they probably speak English with a Chicago accent, but... uh, (laughs) But there was an effort to do something. And then they protested in front of the Russian embassy, and they made the Isaiah Wall. Uh, the activity was uh, pronounced. And then finally they were successful in getting the United States Senate to put in the Jackson-Vanick Amendment which said that Russia would suffer economically until it allowed Jews to leave. And Russia did suffer economically because of it. And that amendment, these are not Jewish congressmen or senators that did that. So it became a cause. And it was a cause that reverberated simply because of the fact that America was against Russia. It was certainly safe to be against the Soviet Union. It's safe to ask for freedom And therefore, it served as a unifying force. And it was successful. One of the most unbelievable miracles of our time is that the Soviet Union was brought down. And it was brought down without a shot. And uh, in my humble opinion, it was the Jews that did it the Jewish dissidents in the Soviet Union who wouldn't let uh, the world forget what was, what communism really looked like and the Jewish position in the United States Jewish population and the pressure of the state of Israel and there was a book I forget who wrote it one of the uh, in the 1960s, one of the uh, no, he had a pen name for the book. Uh, he was like an. Uh, he, he had the then Israel still had uh, uh, diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union. It wasn't broken until the Six Day War. He was there before, and he wrote about. Uh, 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 the Jewish situation in the the Soviet Union and he had there uh, an interesting observation that the Soviet Union was able to blackmail the Arabs by saying if you don't do what we want you to do we can send a million Jews to Israel and they'll absorb them and then you'll never be able to touch Israel again, which is what happened. But that was their leverage, that was their threat. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, so uh, an enormous amount of Soviet Jews came to Israel. And Eventually they become integrated in the country. They were, had a very successful aliyah. And whatever they are, they're more Jewish here than they were there. It's one of the uh, many, many miracles of the age. So if we look at American Jewry today, all three pillars have collapsed. The Holocaust is passé. Spielberg made Schindler's List, and it's over. That's it. What else do you want? We gave you what you wanted. Schindler's List. We don't want to hear stories about it anymore. And the museums are all sterile. And I don't know what impression the school children have when they leave them, what the lasting impression is. But it's hard to sell it. And the state of Israel is also uh, a large portion of American Jewry are not on the side of the state of Israel. They don't like its government, they don't like its prime minister, they don't like its policies, it's too Jewish. The Haredim are running it. We thought we got rid of them a long time ago. It's too aggressive. It embarrasses us. And the Soviet Union has disappeared. We want it, so that's over. So there is no rallying point. There's nothing. There's no glue anymore to hold it together. Now, in the Orthodox world, the glue is Torah and observance of commandments and the Jewish way of life. But the Orthodox world in the United States is a bubble. And because of that therefore uh, the separation between it and the rest of American Jewry is enormous. And the gulf is growing because the Orthodox world is becoming, uh, so to speak, more Orthodox and there's no limit to how more Orthodox you can become and the rest of the Jewish society is becoming less and less Jewish. (coughs) To the extent that uh, all the day schools face an issue, uh, what do you do with the children of intermarried couples? What if they apply? So most of them never are interested, but there are cases where they are interested. What do you do? How do you deal with that problem? And uh, most of the Jewish community centers in the United States cater to the non-Jewish public, not to the Jewish public. And therefore, they're all open on the Sabbath, and they don't have kosher food. Why should they? Their, their, their clientele is non-Jewish. So you have this gulf that becomes wider and wider. And uh, that really is a... Uh, difficult, difficult position. Now, history has taught us that many times what we cannot solve ourselves, outside forces come and somehow solve it for us. So I don't know what the outside forces are. I don't know if they're positive or, God forbid, negative. But if nothing happens, The American Jewish community is going to become much, much smaller in numbers, much less influential in politics, much less powerful in all of the realms that it achieved until now. And in that, there also lies an inherent danger, so the uh, future is uncertain. But I don't think we should despair uh, because, first of all, America—there's never been an exile like America before. So maybe it will prove to be exceptional in these areas as well. And uh, one never knows what's going to happen. One never knows who's going to become president of the United States and have a Seder in the White House. And there are a lot of things that one never knows. And even people like me who know won't tell you, so... (laughs) We have to... uh, We have to keep all of that in mind when we assess the present and the future of American Jewry. And we have to pray and hope for the best, that the Lord will bless us and strengthen us, and we'll be privileged to hear and see good
3: news.
1: Friday morning, JM in the AM, my thanks to Rabbi Beryl Wein. Rabbi Wine's lecture series continue to be the centerpiece of our programming here during the nine days at JM in the AM. His lecture entitled, Declining Jewish Society, Assimilation and intermarriage is part of the series entitled The USA and Its Jews. Uh, check it out, everybody. Go to uh, uh, go to uh, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWine.com or call 1-800-499-WEIN. I also remind you that our friends at Arts Girl are uh, providing all of Rabbi Wine's titles this week at a 15% discount and free shipping with promo code RADIO in honor of our relationship with Rabbi Wine and him, in fact, being the centerpiece of our nine days programming. So go to artscroll.com, artscroll.com, 15% off um, free shipping with promo code radio for anything done by Rabbi Barrel Wine, and, of course, 10% off across the board at artscroll.com if you use promo code radio. This portion of NSN programming brought to you by our friends at A&H, Abel's and Hyman Kosher Hot Dog Sausage and Deli is the world's best and now available at every Trader Joe's nationwide. Check out a A&H today. Enjoyed over Shabbos? Why not? We could eat meat over Shabbos during the nine days. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. round the world, the web at com and the Single Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Erev Shabbos Chazon. Erev Shabbos Parsha's Dvarim. Candle lighting at 7.58 in New York. Wednesday night is Tish Thursday, of course, is Tish Make sure to join us for our Kino service. Galitzal Israel Army Radio 2 p.m. newscast next at J.M.M.
4: Galitzal Shashtime, two greats. <laughs> Good evening, Kan Goni Cohen. I'm Asher Koreyachav. Today, the Jews are praying for the Geder Agvuli of Israel in the Syrian desert. So, כמו כן, נזק מהרסיסים נגרם ככל הנראה למבנה ולרכב וזרחי בשטח ישראל, הפרטים בבדיקה. כתבנו הצבאי צחי דאבוש מציין שבצהל הגבירו הבוקר את הכוננות בגבול לבנון, ברקע הערכות שחיזבאלה ינסה לבצע פיגוע נגד חיילים, בתגובה למותו של פעיל הארגון בסוריה בתקיפה שיוחסה לישראל בתחילת השבוע. רוכב אופנו עקבין 20 נהרג בהתנגשות, בקיר בחניון, בסמטת קביר בתל אביב. צוות מגן דוד אדום קבע את מותו במקום. כתבתנו ליאה ספילקין מוסרת שהמשטרה פתחה בחקירה. זוג הורים מהדרום ניצרו בחשד להתעללות בבנם בין 3 חודשים, לאחר שדיווח על מצבו התקבל מבית החולים ברזילאי אליו פונה. בבדיקה רפואית עלה כי התינוק סובל מחבלות חמורות בכל חלקי גופו ומצבו קשה. כתב נורא משנים עושר שהוריו של התינוק, הוא עברו לחקירה במשטרת אשקלון ודיווח עובר לגורמי הרווחה בעיר. יושבת ראש ועדת קורונה חברת הכנסת יפעד ששע ביטו, נשתתפה אתמול בדיונים ובשיחות שנערכו בקרב חברי הפורום המצומצם של ראש הממשלה. בכירים בה הממשלה נועדו עם על מנת להגיע להסכמות, סביב הגבלות ומהלכים שונים, ולוודא כי הם מקובלים עליה ועל ועדת הקורונה, כך מפרסמת כתבתנו המדינית, מוריה אסרבולברג. ובמקביל מעניין אמיתי מקורונה בישראל, עלה לילה ל-446 בני אדם, ישראל אבריאותית קמ כי מספר החולים מפיגלים בארץ עליה לשלושים או שלושה אלף, the A M that's uh, our news from Israel. Thank you, Galit
1: um, a lot of amazing reaction. <laughs> I didn't expect. I honestly didn't expect it. Uh, a lot of amazing reaction to our um, conversation yesterday with uh, Steve Adelsberg, that we did in honor of uh, baseball's opening day. Oh, who won the Dodger game last night? I don't even know. Uh, let me see who uh, won that one. I, I know the Yankees won the Rain Shorten game. Oh, Dodgers destroyed the Giants last night. Wow. They had a big seventh inning. Uh, anyway, so we had this conversation about baseball and, quote unquote, the Jewish community. You know, Jewish Hall of Famers and who went to school in the same school as Hank Greenberg and the, the Koufax debate that goes on forever about where he was on that Yom Kippur, et cetera, et cetera. And we just got amazing reaction. A lot of great emails, a lot of great texts. Um, so I just uh, I wanted to pass that along. Um, <laughs> this really was really a fun conversation. If you missed it, check it out. It's in yesterday's archive, uh, and it was really a, a tremendous amount of fun. Um, yeah, first time ever, by the way, in baseball history that the uh, opening day and the nine days coincided. First time ever in baseball history. I want to thank those of you. We just got another uh, great donation, by the way. Listener Rhonda, thank you so much. Um, our listeners are not forgetting us, and I appreciate that. Um, if you want to support us and support our uh, our campaign, fjbunity.org, FJB for Foundation for Jewish Broadcasting, fjbunity.org, and I thank you very, very much. Don't forget we have a resume email address. Those of you who are out of work or have people in your life who are out of work, feel free to send the resume. You never know who we may be able to. Oh, by the way, we just sent a bunch of resumes to an organization that just opened up, believe it or not, there are certain things just opening up now. People are really courageous during COVID and getting certain things, certain efforts off the ground. And um, and you have an opportunity to, uh, uh, to take advantage of our services because uh, we matched up uh, that organization with a bunch of resumes that we have that were appropriate. So you never know. We're doing this service only because you never know. You never know who we may know that uh, could become your or somebody else's employer. Uh, resume at NalchamSiegel.com. Resume at NalchamSiegel.com. Anything, of course, in the field of not-for-profit Jewish executive positions, we pass along to our friends at the, the Joel Paul Group, uh, led by Willie Hochman. Um, uh, so, you know, if there's something appropriate in that category, uh, that's where it will go. And... uh and we'll see what happens. Hopefully a uh hopefully a um you know good result. Bezrat Hashem. I want to remind you there's a Twitter feed uh called the Jewish Calendar Tidbits. Jewish calendar tidbits. Uh, it was through that Twitter feed uh that I was reminded that tonight lechadodi is uh chanted to the tune of Elitzion. It was through that Twitter feed that I uh was reminded that uh, there's a discussion about what to say havdalah on uh, tomorrow night. Some people will do it on a shahako like beer. Others would use wine or grape juice, and either drink it themselves or give it to a child, depending on the custom, etc. Uh, so I thank the people at Jewish Calendar Tidbits at Tidbits Jewish uh, for th- those reminders, and I remind you that it's a good Twitter feed to follow. Jewish calendar tidbits, a very good Twitter feed to follow, so keep that in mind. Uh, I mentioned there are co- some upcoming things that I wanted to point out. Uh, Rav Daron Peretz will join us Monday from World Mizrahi. They have an amazing effort going on, which we'll explain. Wednesday next week is Erev Tishabov, above and Abe Foxman, who could certainly tell us stories about what it's like growing up in a horror, in a tragic Jewish scene and tragic environment uh he'll join us Wednesday morning very appro- he's the head of a uh, brand new initiative and so appropriate to speak with of Tishabov and I'm looking forward to that Thursday of course Kinnis at Derby goldwasser uh which is our uh usual uh, custom here when tishabov is observed on either Tuesday or Thursday I think we may have done it also on Sunday am I right did I did I did I, did I do that I think in recent years I may have done that I don't remember um, it was either that or Matis had uh, um a spoken word format for Jam Sunday. But anyway, Thursday is Tisha Buf, so we'll do it then. And uh, coming up today, in addition to Rabbi Yudin at 8.15, in addition to Malcolm Honlein at 7.40, we have two segments, two additional segments I want to get to here in the 7 o'clock hour. The first is Harry Rothenberg, who's been added to our uh, list of uh, weekly presentations. I'm sure he has plenty to say about Parsha's Dvarim. Uh, So we'll get to that in just a minute or two. And then uh, my father's uh, eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which was was presented on the 3rd of Av today, the 3rd of Av, 26 years ago, the Shloshim of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And uh, one of the reasons, aside from the pride of uh, it being my father who's presenting it, and it's such a brilliant speech, uh, one of the reasons we present it is because it is the best short comprehensive biography of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, a man who is a a Rebbe for whom it is impossible to do justice in just 25 minutes. But uh, it, this 25-minute biography and eulogy is is as close as you can get to a, an amazing, uh, full, complete, comprehensive biography in that amount of time. Uh, so we'll get to that, Rabbi Zev Siegel on the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and then we'll get to our weekly update with Malcolm Holmline. So that's how it works on a Friday morning here at JM in the AM, on this Erev Shabbos Chazon, Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim. Harry Rothenberg on the subject of Parshas Dvarim at JM in the AM.
5: This week's Torah portion is the first and the fifth book of the Torah. It begins, Elah dvarim asher diber Moshe." These are the words that Moses spoke, and those words are incredible. This portion and each one of the portions in the last book of the Torah are master classes in public speaking. Moshe criticizes the Jewish people lovingly. He exhorts them, he educates them, and he inspires them and us thousands of years later. But one second, how can this be? When he first met God way back at the beginning of Exodus in Shemos at the burning bush, one of his many excuses for his reluctance to assume the mantle of leadership of the Jewish people was lo ish devarim anochi. I am not a man of words. And God did not contradict him. He said, okay, I'll send Aaron, your brother, Aaron, as your spokesperson. So how did the person who had a speech impediment, who was not a man of words, become later in the Torah, the man of words? The answer, the measure tells us, is that he was cured. When he stood at Mount Sinai, at Har Sinai, when the Torah was given, he, along with any other Jew who had an illness or an ailment, was cured. The blind could see, the deaf could hear, the cripple could walk, and motion. others like him who had speech impediments were cured and were able to speak fluently thereafter. It ain't over till it's over. So you'll say, that's not a good place to learn that lesson. God waved the magic wand. He doesn't do that very often. So consider this. When Moshe was younger, around 20 years old, according to most commentators, he had risen in prominence in the house in which he was brought up, the palace, to become the overseer of that palace, Pharaoh's palace. He was kind of a big deal. And yet, by the end of his career, the Torah tells us that he was the anav mikal adam, the most humble person in the world. That took work. Compare that to the famous case of a young boy who, even into his teenage years, for complicated reasons, wasn't even allowed to be part of his parents' household. He was out in the back, tending the sheep. But he didn't go down in history. He's not known as Dave the Shepherd. We know him as David Amelech, King David. He started off with the most humble of beginnings, became the king of Israel. Moshe was the opposite started off as the overseer of the palace, became the most humble person who ever lived. Your story's not fully written until the last chapter. I heard an interview on the radio earlier this week. A couple people were talking about a figure in the sports world. I won't say who it is because enough people have been slinging mud at him lately that I don't need to jump on the pile. But one of them was pontificating and saying, you know, when you're a teenager, in your 20s, maybe into your 30s, you can still change. But once you hit your 40s, 50s or later than that, you are who you are. You can't change. We say no, that's not true. You can always change. Life is a journey and requires constant introspection and constant attempts to work on yourself, to become a better person. A rabbi once said, and I quote this often, to myself especially, that if you're the same person at 30 that you were at 20, or at 40 that you were at 30, or at 70 that you were at 60, you have wasted 10 years of your life. That's tragic. It is never too late. So roll up your sleeves and get working on changing yourself. Harry
1: Rothenberg on Parsha's Dvorim. Friday morning on this Erev Shabbos. It's also Erev Shabbos Chazon, of course, at JM in the AM. Uh, 75 degrees. Uh, What do we have here? Variable cloudy weather, scattered thunderstorms, and a high of 82. Partly cloudy tonight, low 74. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, a high 89 in New York. Looks like the heat wave is coming back on Sunday. Yeah, what can I tell you? That's the way it looks. Um... Uh, I want to remind everybody again that uh, Thursday is Tishabov B'Av and we will have our kino service Tishabov B'Av morning here at JM and the AM. This year especially, there are going to be people who are not able to go to shul, feel it's safer for them not to be in shul. All that is understood, uh, which means I would assume our Thursday Tishabov B'Av program uh, will be heard by even more people. So uh, for those out there who've heard it before, you know it's an inspiring service. And one that's, uh, again, comprehensive, not long, but comprehensive and uh, appropriate uh, to start the actual day of Tisha B'Av. And for those of you who have never been part of it, take our word for it that, uh, although it's not the same as Shul, obviously, uh, if you are stuck at home and you are planning on spending the day uh, watching uh, different uh, video feeds and uh, presentations regarding Kinos, a great way to start the day is with us and with what we provide in terms of the kino service on Thursday morning. So join us, please. Um, also, a reminder that Ellie Beer, I mentioned that Jerome Peretz is joining us on Monday. Ellie Beer, who is the um, director of, uh, uh, the head, the director of uh, United Hatzalah of Israel, is going to join us Monday as well. Now, he went through a five-week COVID calamity. Uh, what's interesting is, and, and sad, is that he has a report about what the after-effects of COVID are all about. So we'll discuss his story and the reaction of the Jewish world, because he's well-known, and the chesed that he received on so many different, uh, from so many different angles. Uh, but we're also going to discuss uh, the after-effects of COVID, which he says most people are not familiar with, but he can, he can give us a first-hand account of what it's like. So we'll do all that Monday right here. At JM in the AM. Well, I've been telling you that on the 3rd of uh, Av, today, 26 years ago, my father delivered a eulogy on the Shloshim observance uh, in memory of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. My thanks to Rabbi Moshe Herson, uh, who 26 years ago invited my father to participate in that um, in that service um, at the Congregation of Ashachemite, Jacob, and David in West Orange, New Jersey. Then under the leadership of Rabbi Marcus, now under the leadership of Rabbi Zwickler. And um, as I keep saying, it's an unbelievable, comprehensive, short biography of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which is really an important history lesson and an important uh, lesson in general in terms of the way we lead our lives. And I'm proud of the fact that it was delivered by my father. So Rabbi Zev Siegel, 26 years ago today, on the life and impact of the Lubavitcher Rebbe.
6: This coming uh, Shabbos... You shall read in the Torah the summation of Moshe Rabbeinu. And among the things that Moshe Rabbeinu says is Echo Esso Levadi Torchachem Masachem Berivchem. Moshe Rabbeinu confesses that he doesn't know how he is able to carry the burden of leadership all by himself. And then he continues so he decided there should be a leadership assisting him. And he says the qualifications of leadership should be the following and this is what the Torah tells us Get yourselves men wise men understanding men Now you can't help but associate this statement of Moshe Rabbeinu where he designates the qualifications that there is a very strong relationship to Chabad. He says, "Chachomim, Chochma, Nevonim, Bino, the Das," and this is Chabad. The leadership of Klal Yisrael was given to the Rabbi and he fulfilled that mission to the maximum that can be fulfilled he had cloudy soil the entire people of israel was his concern and a deep concern every corner in the world no matter how forsaken it was and no matter how few Jews were there he had them on his mind in his heart and his soul if there was a man qualified to reconstruct Jewish life after the great holocaust after the tragic holocaust that befell our people he was one man who did it he reconstructed jewish life in a very commendable way And at the same time, he made Jews feel, without any exception, whoever they may have been, that they are a part of this reconstruction. He worried about every Jew wherever he was. and he had a certain devotion and dedication to Klaal Yisroel. I used to sit and I had the great privilege and I don't pretend that I understood the rabbi. I don't pretend that I can evaluate his scholarship or his spiritual greatness. But at the same time, in my own way, I was privileged to spend a great deal of time. It is no secret, many of you know it. I used to come in 12 o'clock midnight and walk out not earlier than 3.30 in the morning and sometimes even later. And after a while, when we were sitting, the bell used to ring. And I tried to get up because I knew there were people waiting there, people who were older than me. And as I was trying to get up, the Rebbe said in a tone almost of chastising me. He says, what are you, we are talking about the K'lal. And there was no disturbance when he was engaged in worrying about K'lal Yisroel. And I can go on and on about his great concerns. Nothing else to point out except the Jewish community in the former Soviet Union. Where three generations of Jews were alienated from everything that had to do with Judaism. And the only underground movement that succeeded in existence during the Bolshevik regime was the Lubavitch movement. And I know for a fact, I can stand here for hours and testify how this underground movement functioned with real devotion and dedication to everything that had to do with Jews and Judaism. And the rabbi was the leader. No matter how many thousands of miles he was away, they were waiting with a great deal of thirst to hear something from 770. I was in Riga, and Professor Branover was there. And you probably heard of Professor Branover, beside being a devoted Hossid, a great scientist, universally recognized, a real Jewish leader respect from all walks of life in the state of Israel, under every government. And Professor Branova told us the following. When Gorbachev came to war, the Rebbe, so people were very scared at the time. And the Rebbe sent a message to the Jewish community in Russia and he told them, don't worry, things will get better. And actually, they accepted the rabbi's word. And it calmed them down a little bit. But then Branover says, when Gorbachev was in Israel recently, and he spent quite some time with him, so he asked Gorbachev, Did you really, when you came to power, did you really think that you are going to change from your predecessors? And Gorbachev said, no, not at all. In fact, my idea was to tighten a little stronger than my predecessors. Gorbachev didn't know where he's heading to but the rabbi had enough insight to predict that things will improve and I can testify it from another angle you remember when the El Al plane was hijacked to Algiers And the rumor was that Ariel Sharon was to be on this plane. And he was told by the rabbi that he should not travel with that plane. That was the rumor. When I met next with the rabbi, so a little time passed, And I was curious, and I said to him, I hear rumors that you stopped Sharon from traveling on that El Al plane that was hijacked to Algeria. And the Rabbi said the following, he made sure that he did not accept when I said he stopped the plane. And he said, you know, Sharon came to say goodbye to me before he went to Israel. And I said to him, don't go. And Sharon didn't go. Says it's true. So naturally, obviously, I asked the next question. If you knew that the plane will be hijacked why only save Sharon you could have saved everyone else on that plane and the rabbi gave me a look like I interpreted that it was not the wisest question that I have asked him (laughs) and he says to me the following He he said it in Yiddish do you think that I saw a plane being hijacked. He came to say goodbye and all I did was say, don't go. For me, this was testimony of a certain insight that very rare human beings possess that insight. And this is what Branova meant. And this insight was used to reconstruct Jewish life in the world again. A great deal was said about the Rebbe's involvement in Eretz Israel. I knew many, many leaders in Jewish life, Zionists and non-Zionists. I had the privilege to be the youngest delegate, believe it or not, I was young once, the youngest delegate to the last Zionist Congress before the establishment of the Jewish state in Basel. And I sat on very important committees And I saw leaders as well in the Torah world as well. But every one of them had a certain area of knowledge and insight. One may have been politically, diplomatically well versed, or one may have been Involved in the economics, or one may have been involved in science or in military affairs, but the rabbi had them all. And I can again say it from personal experience the hours that I listened and discussed of every conceivable phase in the life of Eretz Israel, Not only education, not only the practice of Torah, but every conceivable phase of life in Eretz And I don't have to tell you his concern about the Shlemus of Eretz Israel. That was on his agenda. And in the last few years, he had something to worry about, as we see it now. We talk about outreach a great deal. There are many, many who are occupied with outreach and God forbid for me to minimize it. I know what it is. I was a little involved with it. But the outreach of Lubavitch is second to none. The devotion and dedication and the misilas nefesh of the shlichim in all parts of the world. I was sitting a short three weeks ago, a Friday night, who is now acting as the chief rabbi of Latvia. And you know the days are very long now in that part of the world. And I heard the Friday night the devotion, the discipline, nothing was difficult. And if there is Jewish life today in Riga, it is this chief rabbi who could have stayed in Kfar Chabad with his family. Instead, he is suffering his rigor. Or a young man, many of you may know Grossman, a wife, a young wife with three infants, doing youth work in every possible way. He's running now a summer camp. And I don't have to tell you, I want, I had occasion to, a couple of years ago when I spoke for a group who was involved with Lubavitch, to tell you about someone who was very, very active here, the Braskin, who is in Casablanca for many, many years. And I saw him there in 68, also with infants. And when I went down from his apartment about 1 o'clock at night on a Friday night, and I said to him, excuse me for keeping you so late, so he says, what do you mean, excuse me? First of all, you are the first one who is here, who was there. There in Morocco in those days, there meant Israel. That's number one. So we heard what's doing. And secondly, he says, let my children know that there is there is a Jew in the world who speaks Yiddish too. I can tell you many stories, but my time is limited. I can tell you what the Rebbe did in South Africa when I was there in the 70s, when the Jewish community was in a turmoil, and the Rebbe calmed them down, and the Shlichim there did their job. If there is a Seder in Himalaya, who does it? If a shohet was needed in Romania, who supplied it? If a mohel was needed in any part of the world, they were there, and they are still there. Yes, indeed, outreach to its maximum All part of a reconstruction of Jewish life. Tremendous amount of creativity. You remember when the rabbi started with the Miftzat filling in the Six-Day War? And filling was not the most popular thing on the American scene. It was popular maybe on the day of Bar Mitzvah or a month before the Bar Mitzvah. But I have noticed what Fiun did. When you come to the Kotel, to the Western Wall, a religious Jew has no problem. Either he does Minche or Mayriv or Shachris, And if he comes in another part of the day, he says, feeling, He reads the Psalms. But what does a non-religious Jew do at the Kotel? What does he do? Another piece of paper on the wall. But feeling became synonymous with the Kotel of the non-committed Jew. He comes to the Kotel, he knows that this is the time to put on film and say Shema Yisroel. Or all the other projects, the lighting of candles, another other creativ- creativity. The rabbi was the first one on the American Jewish scene who did not permit Jews to run away from Jewish
3: neighborhoods.
6: But as it was said at the same time, the rabbi never forgot the individual. And I want to share with you one of the experiences I had, which I must confess to you marked the rest of my life. Particularly in the last few years, it was a great help to me. On one of my travels, and until this day I don't know how the rabbit discovered that I'm going somewhere I was called and the rabbi asked me to do something in that particular country. I came back, so I gave him a report and again with lack of wisdom I say to him, I conversed in Yiddish, I said the rabbis will listen. I said, the Rabbi should know that this was not easy, an easy task for me. It was very difficult. And again, the Rabbi looks at me and makes me aware how uh, unwise I am, to put it mildly. And he says to me, "Alafsegel, since when? Have you made a contract with an rabbinical laylom for a gringen life?" The rabbi says to me, "Since when did you make a contract with the Almighty for an easy life?" And as I said, among many, many things, this has become a guide in my own life. Yes, indeed, my friends, there is a great deal to be said and a great deal will be said. Because in all this, there is immortality. The Rebbe was not only the Manig Hador, he will be the Manig Hadoros. Many, many generations will benefit from what the Rebbe was for the people of Israel. And I know, I'm as sure as I can be, that right now, as he stands before the Kisei HaKovod, he is doing everything he possibly can
1: to
6: bring about our Geulos Shleimovimahiro, Amen.
1: J.M. and the A.M., always an honor to play uh, during the nine days. Uh, my father's uh, eulogy, uh, a comprehensive biography that uh, is just spectacular of the Lobavitcher Rebbe, and it was delivered 26 years ago last night at the Shloshim observance on the 3rd of Av, 26 years ago. And my thanks again to Rabbi Moshe Herson. And to those who are responsible for recording this, frankly, which was not always the norm 26 years ago, because many people, as uh, the reaction has been this morning again, are always inspired by uh, uh, this presentation. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos parshas Dvarim, Erev Shabbos Chazon, Tishabov begins on Wednesday night, candle lighting in New York at 7.58, and um, uh, it is uh, Erev Shabbos Chazon here at JM in the AM, this time each and every Friday, Friday mornings. 7.40 Eastern Time. It's time for our weekly update. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He joins us Friday mornings at this time for the weekly update. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM.
7: It's good to be with you. Despite the nine days, it's um, and all that we have to think about in this period, but Shabbos is coming and it's always a uh, good thing to look forward to.
1: No question about it. An interesting uh, period of time now during the nine days. Um, Well, we'll start with what's going on in Israel. Um, Non-Israelis cannot travel to Israel now. That's been extended until the 1st of September. We know about the exception for yeshivot and seminaries, by Baruch Hashem. That looks like it's going in a positive direction. Uh, I know that Israel has now appointed a Corona czar. If you know anything about Rani... Uh, Gamzu, please tell us. Uh, And on top of everything else, the prime minister is being uh, peppered by tremendous criticism. Is that criticism legitimate?
7: Um, I mean, every leader can be subjected to legitimate criticism, and there's no doubt that uh, he makes mistakes like everyone else. And when he benefited from the uh, initial handling of COVID and now... The prime minister becomes the target and the focus because there's the resurgence and the necessary steps that have to be taken to to address it. Um, I think that the uh, the appointment of of, uh, Rani Gamzu is uh, very important. He's a very seasoned uh, executive. He's had a tremendous track record, and I think he can help coordinate uh, the response. Uh, Of course, there are always balanced problems with the Ministry of Health. And with those that they're serving, the demonstrations last night were very boisterous. I was actually talking to somebody who lives right near the prime minister, and uh, you could hear it through the phone how uh, loud and and boisterous the demonstrations were, and some of them got a bit out of control. Um, So there's a charged political climate, but you know it's fed when people are not at work and people don't see an an end to this yet, and here that's true also. And, uh, you know, the, the, the travel is at least till september we don't know what will happen then right. and if they'll still be with the quarantine and this means then that Hashanah yom kippur so quote, may be travel may be in jeopardy which i think for the tourism industry what a devastating blow that is and for all of those who have children who want to visit who like uh, I, I go usually every Sukkot, and it's it's uh, devastating to think that we won't be able to to be there. But health comes first, and we got to make sure we get past this. Now they're talking about a third wave in October uh, in various parts of the world, and including here. And we have to make sure to do everything possible to contain it.
1: I mean, we'll we'll talk obviously, you know, more about what's going on in Israel, etc. But but there are two things I want to bring up, Dafka. Now, as you've uh, briefed us on, on the current COVID situation. The first is, and Malcolm, I don't even want to say it, and I know you don't even want to hear it, but there are rumors about new elections in Israel.
7: Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that that's not a tactic to build pressure for the opposition, which knows that it will do very poorly in an election um, that uh, for, to get the budget passed, which is something he needs to do. Uh, are there reasons strategic reasons why he might want to have an election, yes, because of the breakdown of the opposition, the January trial. I mean, there are so many reasons that people have speculated about. I believe that this is right now a ploy. It doesn't mean it can't happen or won't happen. Um, You know, in Israeli politics, one thing you know is that the only thing that's not, that everything is not predictable. There are no standards. So the reports, I think, though, are... Premature at this point, and that we won't. I don't think the Israeli people want to go to an election, they don't want to go through it again. That would be the fourth time in a little over a year. Wow, and it's uh, just wow. not some, it's a very expensive exercise. And then you'd have to go through it. Will they be able to go to voting booths? Will they have to do mail in? Will they have to do other means which uh, Israel's not really uh, adjusted for?
1: Yeah, forget the money, which I know you know is not easy to forget. Obviously, it's expensive, but just the the whole psychological thing that would be going on. Uh, it's huge. And, and plus the COVID, you know, like you just said, it's it's another election and, and we did observe, you know, what it was like for Israelis to go through that process all these times and then toss in the whole pandemic thing. I, I mean, it's just, it, it would be unbelievable if that happened. The other thing is, you know, you said nine days, obviously this is a time of year we want to emphasize good news if we can. We always want to emphasize good news. I didn't realize that almost 300 uh, Jews from Ethiopia have made Aliyah since the pandemic has started, and Malcolm, that begs the question that someone asked me this week. I thought it was a great question: Is there any country accepting new citizens in, in, during the pandemic, or is Israel the only one?
7: Uh, I think that Israel is one of few, if anybody else, uh, accepting legal. Immigrants helping them, and, you know, that Israel is always subject to criticism on these issues, and yet nobody credits them with the extraordinary effort that this took to to bring them in. Nobody would have criticized Israel for not doing it, because most other countries don't do it. Um, And, you know, the, the other thing is that what you said before, because of the covid and everything attendant to it we're not looking at what's really happening in the world people are not focused on so many developments in, in adjacent to israel we can talk about the conflicts in syria but not the conflicts we know the conflicts between russia and turkey between russia and iran iran and turkey the the expansion now of russian presence in the Dar al-Asur, driving the Iranians moving more towards the Israeli border just in this last week, let alone the attack in Syria that took a number of um, Iranian militia or Iranian-affiliated, including a Hezbollah uh, officer's life. And now Israel has to build up the defenses, uh, reinforce defenses along the northern border because the anticipation of attempts to strike back and to retaliate for for this the 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 Syrian situation alone, you know, where there was a 60 military vehicles con, converged on one place as they uh, the Al Talib camp in uh, in Dar Al Asur to see the Russians uh, expanding the thing and moving just quietly creating realities the Iranians uh, are doing the same and we can talk about uh, we'll talk about Iran um, but I'm saying in so many places Erdogans saying we will never leave Syria until the government falls until Syria is free um uh, they, they the Libya is on the point of explosion where you have the, we have Russia, Egypt, UAE, Turkey, um, others, e, Italy involved in, on various sides of this conflict. And Egypt authorizing this week the parliament for CC uh, to mobilize the troops to go to the Lebanon, uh, Libyan border if Turkey moves on the city of Sirte as it said it would, which would open it up to moving eastward towards the oil fields, uh, something Egypt said they cannot allow because it's a direct threat to them. Uh, I'm, uh, just uh, the Russians have had a massive, massive drill going on—a global drill involving hundreds of, of uh, ship, maybe 150,000 uh, soldiers and others in a in a massive worldwide drill that just ended yesterday. I, it began on July 17th, and uh, with units from different. Um, Uh, elements in in the northern and pacific fleets and you know they they always occurring incursions on our uh, defense lines in alaska and elsewhere over the last uh, that they people are taking advantage of what they see Uh, i mean they have 56 separate drills with uh, 150,000 troops and 26,000 vehicles and equipment it's massive and this is really uh these are things that are getting zero attention. Yeah, the
1: only thing, and and believe me, I understand the uh, importance of uh, uh, this audience and people around the world being familiar with what you're saying. The one thing you have told us over the last couple of months is that at the minimum, thank God, Washington is paying attention. Would you still say so?
7: I would hope they're paying attention, but we don't see enough of a strong response to some of the situations, including Erdogan Turkey's aggressiveness, Uh, increasing aggressiveness in many areas they are in the in the Persian Gulf area they are in uh, Libya as I said they're in Venezuela they are certainly pressuring the countries in the region they're moving in the Mediterranean Sea uh, to to develop their own pipeline and are protesting the East Med pipeline that Israel approved this week and together with uh, Cyprus Italy and Greece our partners in it, which will bring energy from uh, Israel, from the Mediterranean to Europe, uh, very important, and, and Turkey is now threatening it, and also moving 15 to 20 ships, naval ships, into the uh, into a region of the um, uh, Casa Liorza Islands of Greece, owned by Greece. I mean, there's so many provocations uh, by him. let alone bringing 3,000 troops to Libya, and, uh, et cetera, and yet we're not seeing the kind of of forceful response coming to a NATO member and and dealing with it. You also see in other circumstances where the message is not clear uh, about where we stand. The United States did cancel the F-35s to Turkey, and now the United States is buying them. Our own Air Force is is buying them because they bought the Russian S-400 defense system, and this was the the punishment, but they also announced the TurkStream stream pipeline, which will compete with the um, the Greek-Israel Cypriot one. And uh, so th- part of it is the question of whether they, the United States has been very effective with the sanctions on Iran and uh, being aggressive in terms of, of dealing with it. We see it in the eco- economic impact. We see it on many, uh, many fronts, but at the same time, the... Um, I can't say that that these situations, many of them, get the kind of attention. And and part of it is the media not covering it. Part of it is government response and people, uh, governments here and everywhere else deflected uh, and the attention is affected on the COVID issue.
1: Right. So they know about it. The question is where is is it on their priority list? And we'll go back to Iran and some of the other issues in a moment. I do want to address what was, uh, I think, clearly the headline of the week when it comes to news from overseas and that those are the images uh, chilling images for anybody and especially those who uh, uh, who come from a certain uh, history and background in the Jewish world of the uh, uh, prisoners in China uh, being led away I mean what's your take on what's going on there and uh, how the world is and should react
7: well, first of all, it's interesting. These are the Uyghurs. These are it's a Muslim minority population that is Turkic in cultural identity, and um, they have been long a uh, hotbed. There is a Islamist influences is there, and uh, the government feels threatened, and they have gotten away now with this um, with taking off, taking away. In this case, I think it's a million people. That's the estimates. Wow. Um, and yet. China has just signed a huge deal with uh, Iran, uh, which involves getting natural gas and energy from and oil, from Iran, and for them investing hundreds of uh, billions of dollars or many billions of dollars uh, in various projects there. Their, their relationship with other Muslim countries and the plight of the Uyghurs not a factor. I mean, can you imagine signing a deal with a country that would have arrested the Jews yep, and, and yep. not protesting yep. and not standing up to it and there isn 't this sense of ourvo of, of a rise for one another um, and and they see the same pictures we see so the, the um, and the United States has protested it and spoken up about it, a few others have also. But China, unfortunately, gets away with it a great deal, and they are, in the meantime, under the cover of COVID and everything else, Man. moving to expand their um, their uh, various international initiatives, uh, the Road and Belt Initiative, uh, which they're trying to make Iran now a hub. I think it's it's exaggerated in its import, but it's it is certainly significant regardless. But they are locking in energy resources; they are expanding their hold, and when they get into a country, they control mm-hmm. vital resources. So they build ports, which they will then control. Well, Israel faced a problem because the Haifa port was, was rebuilt. The United States is protested by China. The United States has protested. I'm sure they, they are diminishing the the role that China will play. But they have money, and they have workers. They send in people, and they do projects all over Africa, elsewhere. Is a th- quiet revolution.
1: What do you think of the dueling consulate shutdowns between the U.S. and China?
7: This is it's tit for tat, and it's you know normal uh, for, for in the political and diplomatic realm, uh, but it's reflective of the tensions between the two countries
1: and big picture uh, big picture you, you'd prefer if there was a warm relationship between the two, or this is not such a bad thing to have a division between the u s and China. What would you say big picture was?
7: Look, I think optimally I would like to see the United States have good relations with everybody, especially the largest population in the world, and given their influence. But China is driven by one thing, and that's its interests. It votes against us in the U.N. all the time. It's now, you know, supporting uh, the Iranians in the U.N. It is opposing renewing the arms embargo uh, it almost never votes uh, with the United States or shares the interests except uh, you know where there is a particular need that they have so they and they align with Russia when it's convenient but you know you can't dismiss this, its existence this is not a you know some island in the Pacific this is a very important country uh, but I do think that we have to base the relationship on realistic considerations, including human rights, but economic uh, exploitation, their violations of their patent agreements is a huge factor for many companies. Uh, But at the same time, look at the trade, look at where our masks come from, look at where so much that we use every day comes from.
1: I hear that. And of course, as you alluded to, uh, there is a significant relationship, or at least there was, until March, a significant relationship business-wise between Israeli firms and China. Uh, Would you say that's much different right now or not?
7: No, I think it continues. They invest a great deal in Israeli high-tech, and um, they bought some Israeli companies. uh, So it continues, but I think that there is a wariness, there is a concern, especially because the United States has put a lot of pressure on about that,
1: it's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, at and NahumSegal.com, and the NahumSegal Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Weekly update here at JM in the AM. So uh, back to Iran for a moment. Uh, we've heard about and we discussed the explosions. we heard about and discussed the fires. This week we heard about... Uh, burning ships, they're attributing that to uh, accidents and weather. Um, And now we read about the possibility that some of what has been done now in mid-2020 is the result of different things that the Mossad did, and I'm talking about physical things in Iran that the Mossad did two years ago in 2018. What do you make of that story?
7: I've seen it. I don't know. Obviously, this is all... uh very speculative about what Israel did or didn't do. Israel has not uh, identified itself as responsible for any of these attacks. And, um, you know, that Israel has a lot of considerations. You know, the exposure this week of the Iran-backed PFLP terror cell that planned massive attacks in the West Bank and against Israel that was, um, thank God, exposed. And the arrest of, I think, um, 10 terrorists... uh, uh, led by Yazen Abu Salah uh, and um, they were they were inspired by the way the, by the attack in the in doleb in induk bubin uh, when Rina uh, Irina Schneir was killed uh, so Iran poses a direct threat to, to Israel on many fronts, including the rapidly advancing capacity in ballistic missiles and their nuclear program. And whoever was responsible, maybe it was domestic, uh, some domestic element. Maybe there were some planes involved. This is all speculation. People uh, still think about it being Stutzneck so many years later or the son of um, it, it It is hard to tell. But what's interesting is that Iran keeps saying if if they find out that the country is behind it, they will retaliate. There has been not, thank God, a retaliation, except the concerns about the Hezbollah-based attack. Um, uh, But the, the, um, the fact is that Iran warned Israel and others not to create a narrative about these attacks at the very start because that would have forced them, in response to popular pressure probably, to to respond to it so the the um, iranians are not looking for an all-out conflict i mean this is it's too much to think that it's all coincidence that such right. a series of attacks and that really did set back certainly their centrifuge development the ballistic missile program other things uh, were affected and impacted by the series of events more than there were more than has been actually reported
1: Well, you know, it's one of the important—I mean, one of the things you just said that uh, I want to emphasize is that they can be bankrupt. It doesn't prevent them from still funding terror, which, which, when you talk about governmental priorities, is really unbelievable.
7: It is very true. They they, uh, don't care about their people. You know, this week, Rouhani acknowledged that there were 25 million people in Iran— it's almost a third of the population, have the virus. Wow. And, they, we, we, and you know how long I kept saying that there were satellite pictures of, of mass graves and that the numbers are not true, the numbers are not true that they're giving. Uh, tens of thousands have died from it. And he said the number will go up to 30 to 35 million. And the, the you know even the reporting on that, when the president said it until now, if a doctor at a hospital spoke to a reporter or, or publicly about the cases they were treating, they were arrested. Because they were trying to maintain the lie that this was contained and there was very few cases the fact is that it's very widespread and their hospitals are not getting the funding and the equipment to to fight it it is not true that our sanctions affect medicines it's the fact that they're diverting the funds for terrorism uh, they continue to aid Venezuela which is in free fall completely uh, and you know do you see the impact that they have lessened some of the money that gone to Hezbollah, but they continue to ship the weapons, which is why Israel has to strike. That they uh, want to put their um, air defense system in Syria, which is Israel obviously can't allow to be become functional. Um, they are uh, involved in so many uh, areas uh, that the, the and the people are angry about it. There's growing dissent. You don't hear about it again. There's no reporting about. The anger of the Iranian people about the conditions under which they live. Their currency is worthless. The Lib- you know the Lebanon, their Lebanese allies are in free fall, and there's a lot of anger against Hezbollah, and Nasrallah. Their, their currency in one month went down 60 percent, and it was already in free fall before that. Uh, the Syrian economy and and the uh, currency is is almost worthless, and you have 80 percent unemployment, and they look to them, they get nothing from Iran uh, to be supportive or economic development or anything of that kind. So you're right. The government sets priorities. He's now trying to bring in young people, Khamenei, to, and radical young people, to assure that his ideology continues, even though we know that, the, that a very big proportion of the people reject it, certainly the minority groups who make up a majority of the population, and the, um, and the young people. And yet, and they have arrested a lot of people. They continue to, to act against any manifestations. Uh, Iran is in, in dire straits, and yet the people don't matter. It's the ideological, extremist ideological agenda that drives them. They're building new facilities near, in the Gulf of Oman, perhaps because they're going to take action against the Straits of Hormuz and want to feel free without having to suffer retaliation against their refineries there.
1: How many uh, deaths did you say he acknowledged? He
7: didn't acknowledge the number of deaths. Oh, he didn't say a number. Uh, I I'm saying to you... That it's over 15,000. No, I said there were tens of thousands.
1: Google says 15 and a half, and I would think that uh, very often in cases in a country like Iran, the numbers are higher than than the official people know about.
7: If the president is saying you have 25 million cases,
1: right.
7: so just take what's happening around the world, take the average right. and see how much that yields. The, of, of and And in a situation where medical care... And and they had great hospitals and great doctors, but it's all deteriorated.
1: Interesting. I'll tell you a lot of places. Well, I don't know. Was Iran also in that category early on of places that were barely affected by it? Like we see in Africa and we saw. They were affected
7: immediately. Oh, they were. Because you have all the Chinese doing the projects, workers, hundreds of thousands, and also the ones who came to KUM to study, who came from the infected areas in China and no controls were imposed they didn't right. even impose controls let's say on kuman the holy sites where people come in they kiss or they even some even lick the the, the site there right. that uh, no, no steps were taken to isolate the uh, chinese people coming in to contain it you know put them in quarantine or anything else so it spread like wildfire in the beginning
1: can i ask you a question that'll definitely demonstrate how little i know about this topic the oil tanker uh, a problem off of yemen's coast I mean, there's no way it, to, to simply start transferring oil from a facility like that or a vessel like that to other vessels or to other you know types of storage units.
7: So it's a, it's in a deteriorated state. And Yemen is, I'm glad you raised it because, uh, I mean, I was thinking about it, but I didn't want to get into it because everything sounds so overwhelming then. But Yemen has become now another focal point between Russia and and Turkey, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, as it has been for a long time. UAE is deeply involved. Turkey is trying to take over some of the critical strategic locations there. The Houthis have, have continued to move against um, populations, even though there were, when there is attempted ceasefires, none of those things uh, uh, really hold, uh, and the situation there is devastating. And the uh, COVID has spread very widely in um, in Yemen, so it's a, it's an, another neglected story. Largely, and they continue the Houthis continue to fire at uh, Saudi Arabia, and missiles and other things. Uh, I think everybody would like to get out of there. It's a it's a bottomless pit. The humanitarian crisis there is is terrible. Um, and then uh, when it comes to a ship like this, which could cause a tremendous uh, ecological uh, danger, etc., uh, there's no resolve to deal with it.
1: I would think environmental uh, advocates around the world would be you would think would be tossing amazing suggestions to them at this point, and and voluntary help. But I guess. Uh... I don't know, maybe because of COVID they're not able to. What do you think of Pakistan wanting uh, a seat on the United Nations Human Rights Council?
7: Look at the other members. You have uh, countries like Iran and Venezuela and Iraq, all of them getting seats on the uh, Human Rights Council. That's why the United States is not party to it. It has proven itself over and over again to be Mm -hmm. a biased body against Israel and the U.S. and the resolutions uh, you know, uh, that they have, there's only one country that's the, is a separate agenda item, and that's Israel, and one that's always subject to a series of seven, eight resolutions that are automatic and others that appear per- periodically. Uh, the Human Rights Council is anything but that, and it, it enshrines the, the worst of the dictatorial uh, countries, so Pakistan would fit in fine there.
1: It, it's so hard for good people to believe that, you know, <laughs> the Human Rights Council is as corrupt and as uninterested in human rights as it is. It's just, it's just
7: funny. Just take a look at the membership. You I know. know and you have, I'm saying for people, if they just want to have a, a sense of, of – uh, and, and you see the corruption of all the UN agencies. Thank God the International Criminal Court, which was supposed to rule – on uh, the case, you know, that the Palestinians want to uh, want to bring, and they're not eligible, they're not a state, that, and Israel's not a signatory, and the United States, both the United States and Israel, are targeted by the ICC in really horrific ways and in a consistent basis. The uh, prosecutor there, uh, we know, favors declaring uh, that they have jurisdiction. You see the corruption of, of the U.N. agencies. The United States has pulled out of, of many of them, uh, President Trump, I think, acted against the Human Rights Council and against other bodies because of these, these, these in, inbred uh, discriminatory practices. And the um, you know the it, it, the question is, can UN be healed? And right now, you see who are the majority. You see the the, the even when the Secretary General wants to make change. They're incapable, and, you, and a lot of these issues, they don't have an ability to resolve, not even with UNIFIL, whose mandate, UNIFIL, the forces on the Lebanese-Israeli border, uh, whose mandate is to, to monitor, to report on Hezbollah violations. Now, yeah. anybody who can't see the violations, you just go up to the border, you look down, you see it. Right. You see, them moving their troops. they all of the encampments, moving weapons, the establishment of missile rooms in thousands, perhaps, but certainly in hundreds and hundreds of locations in in southern Lebanon now in Beirut, and they do nothing. They sit in their bunk, and and when Israel asks for the renewal, but to strengthen the mandate, nothing happens. I mean, just the the uh, an agency that has one mandate to fulfill UN Security Council resolution and to monitor the hezbollah when when it's the most blatant violation one could imagine
1: this is a setup question for a bigger question what do you think of the nancy pelosi endorsement of ilan omar
7: they have a rule that they've adopted of endorsing the incumbents and um i think it's um it's very regrettable i, I think that without mention of her her bias and um, allegedly anti-Semitic and uh, allegations of her, you know, c- corruption, and yet uh, she gets uh, the endorsement. So I think it sends uh, it's, it's a bad message.
1: And the reason it's a setup is because you and I over the last few weeks, especially during COVID and then, of course, during the protest rallies, the quote-unquote equal rights rallies, et cetera, uh, you and I had spoken about the difficult position that Jewish leadership, and I think our Jewish community in general is in. You don't know what to say what side to take, if any, maybe better to remain silent, etc. And I bring this up because Miriam Elman had what I thought was a great quote. She said, whether they self-identify on the political right or left, Jews who view Zionism as central to their faith and identity, and, and by the way, the majority of the organizations you are affiliated with under your umbrella, I think you would describe basically... Of view Zionism as central to their faith and identity are increasingly being cast out as the uh, cast out of the quote community of the good, smeared as racists, Islamophobic, pro-genocide, and violent. And Malcolm, unfortunately, that's becoming I think much more of a reality. Uh, it's like be- being between a rock and a hard place. If you are if you're a Zionist with any political bent, left or right, just because you have that label, uh, you can't win now politically. In this country,
7: well, I, I'm not sure that you can't win. There, there are people who are proclaimed as pro-Israel and openly identify. Even uh, somebody like Richard Torres in the Bronx, um, who has won uh, the congressional race there, it appears. <clears throat> and on, in other cases, you have people who are openly hostile winning in where they have significant Jewish populations, and the Jewish population's voting pattern doesn't seem to reflect. The concern that you, you express yeah. and should be expressed that's true. um that's true th- that's one two uh, we have seen the debate over the platform it's not final and it'll be this weekend finalized but you know there was an attempt strong attempt to get into the core uh, and, and incorporate occupation into the language right. and vice president biden himself intervened to to preclude it there are things i'm sure that are critical and talk about uh, the need for a two-state solution and for you know israel to to be forthcoming But, um, I mean, there was a concerted effort by many within the party to to make sure that it would not be an extremist expression. So that has to be Sanders called it. and Omar and the, the Skoyed and all those other people. Who... Right, your point
1: being that we have to acknowledge the victories. We can't just be despondent about
7: And also not to write off the whole party. I mean, right. there's still significant support, and we have to work harder to make sure that, that we, we maintain the ties. And you never know who wins in an election. We have to work with whoever is there. It doesn't mean we work equally with people, who with those who I think, Take these horrific public stands and who in, uh, take uh, extremist positions, anti-Zionist, anti-Jewish. Uh, we do not have to engage them. We don't have to keep turning a uh, cheek. I think you give people a chance, uh, as we've seen. The canon and others uh, expressing and uh, making statements that um, show regret if somebody is sincere, and it, and and the demonstration of that is in their actions afterwards, not just in the words uh, that come at the moment. And I've had the chance to talk to him and think that it's sincere but we will see we we test it um but the in the political realm today you're right we see the radicalization left and right we see the um you know the failure to debate substantive issues there's hardly any discussion of the matters we talk about and it's the reason why i try to insert them because people have to be aware of of uh, you know all the things that are, are are taking place and the you know the failure to put any emphasis uh, on it, when you see neo Nazis marching in Pennsylvania, when you, you know, and then covered by freedom of speech, when you with swastikas and everything, and the other manifestations that we've seen of anti Semitism, uh, we we can't just ignore it and say that this is the way it is, and you know, throw up our hands and say you know just deal with the good guys. No, you, we you, have to
1: expose them. Do you ever sit down uh, on a Friday night and say to yourself, I cannot believe I'm fighting the same battles I fought 50 years ago?
7: I, I honestly, yes. I do think that, um, <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, I, first of all, I don't know when, when I just remember making havdala and then I make kiddish, and I know <laughs> something happens in between, but not sure what. But it's the, the same the, we battles just in many by, ways. But I, I see how many hours we were on Zoom calls and, and conference calls and the time we were spending trying to address... The panoply of issues. There are just so many things. Yeah, happening. but
1: my, but my point being that you know, in all seriousness, fifty years ago, and <laughs> right. that we exactly. see,
7: and and if you look at the story <clears throat> of Tishabah, of all the things that that have look at the lessons that are contemporary for us today. Yeah, and that, you know, right. somebody asked me yesterday about the the story of of um, you know, in Worms, the cemetery was desecrated this past week in Worms, Germany, which is a very old cemetery where Ben and many others are buried, and though we don't know, I think, the exact places, and it was desecrated significantly. And, you know, at the time of the return from Babel, they wrote to the Jews in Worms and said, look, we're going back. you should, you got to come back. And this, you know, they made up the Shum, uh, Mungenza, uh, Worms, and Spire, three great communities, ancient, ancient communities. And the, uh, they wrote back, they said, you have your... Great Jerusalem there, we have our little Jerusalem here, yeah. and refused. And look at the price we pay, because, you know, we don't appreciate when we have the opportunities to go to Lime, to build lime, when people don't want to face realities. And they say that they suffered more during the Inquisition than any other communities because of it.
1: Yeah, future of the Jewish people's in the state of Israel, and it's a very good week to remember that. Malcolm, I thank you, and easy fast. We'll speak, Bezrat Hashem, Erev Shabbos, Nachamu. God willing. Malcolm. Well. Thank you so much, Shalom. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He joins us Fridays for the weekly update right here at JM in the AM. This portion of NSN programming brought to you by our friends at A and H. Abel's and Hyman Kosher Hot Dog Sausage and Deli is the world's best. Now available as a the hot dogs are now available at every Trader Joe's nationwide. Try A and H today. Our friends at Art Scroll 10% off of everything across the board uh, with promo code radio. And in honor of our relationship and the fact that we are highlighting Rabbi Wine's lectures during the nine days, 15% off on all Rabbi Beryl Wine titles plus free shipping if you use promo code radio. Go to artscroll.com. make sure to use promo code radio, and don't forget information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, and... RabbiWine.com, RabbiW.E.I.N.com. If you have not yet supported our fundraiser for uh, this season, our spring fundraiser, I ask you to please dig deep and give what you can. Keep us going at JM&AM and, and the Nahum Siegel Network. Just this morning is a perfect example of what we provide on a regular basis and why every person listening right now, I believe, should spread the word to your friends and relatives around the world about what is available to them for three hours a day live on this platform. Please do it. Please tell everybody you know. We are we are providing inspiring programming that nobody else is doing, and nobody else is doing it live, and nobody else is doing it every day. So I'm asking you to please spread the word, and I thank you. Uh, this time each and every Friday, every of Shabbos, with great pleasure, we present Rabbi Benjamin Yudin spiritual leader emeritus, Congregation Shomrei Torah, Fairlawn, New Jersey, to address the entire listening audience concerning the Torah portion of the week. Good morning, Rabbi Yudin.
8: Good morning, Nachum. Good air Shabbos, everybody. Tomorrow we have the privilege of reading Parshas Devarim. We begin the fifth book of the Torah. It is called Mishnah Torah, and while we do have a review that Moshe is providing the next generation about to go into Eretz Yisrael with much of the history of what transpired in the desert in the past 39 years. We have coming up next week the Ten Commandments, the review of the Revelation. But I think it's very important for us to realize that We read parshas Devarim every year prior to Tisha B'Av, and we pray and we believe that Tisha B'Av will become a holiday. But as long as it is not, and we have to sit down on the ground and mourn, then it's important that we take note of the fact that the commentaries tell us that the opening puzzle Eilad Vorim, these are the words, Ashedi Ber Moshe call Yisrael. That Moshe spoke to all Israel. This is an unusual way to begin speaking to all Israel. And the rabbis tell us, Ooh, who is Moshe talking to? Not only those in front of him, but call Yisrael. He's speaking to all Israel over the generations. When they read the Torah, if you're privileged to hear the Torah reading, in Yitzhashem tomorrow, in shul, in a backyard, or you read it, the parasha yourself at home, understand that this is being spoken to you, to each and every one of us. And I'll try to share with you one of the messages of this Sefer Musar, the book of Musar that the book of Devarim is at the end. According to the Chinuch, who follows the Rambam, there are two negative mitzvos found in this week's parsha. Both of them are related to judges. One, that the community should appoint only judges that are worthy and knowledgeable and second of all the judges should not be afraid of the litigants and they are to give proper judgment unfortunately because this coming Wednesday night is and Thursday is Tish B'Av I feel compelled to review some of the halachos with you and just to remind you I'll try to run through them if you have any questions please consult your local rav so understand already that this coming Wednesday afternoon the rabbis tell us that after mid the day we're already which is approximately a few moments after one so we are already close to Tish Ab'Av and ideally, and this is such an interesting concept that ideally that which I'm going to learn on Wednesday afternoon is to be on my mind Wednesday night. And since I'm not to study Torah Wednesday night and Thursday, so there's even a question as to what I should be studying this coming Wednesday afternoon. Again, Halavai, we were all on that level, but it shows us what the ideal is. And so, already on this coming Wednesday afternoon, one should not take a pleasure walk after Chatzos to try to remind us of what is going to happen. We're not going to say Tachanun at Mincha this coming Wednesday afternoon. Nothing could be more exciting than that. Why? It's an Erev Yom Tov. And it's not a contradiction that we're going to sit down, unfortunately, if it has to be that way, this coming Wednesday night until Thursday, mid the day, we're going to sit till Chatzos on the ground and we're going to cry. And at the same time, we didn't say Tachon on Wednesday afternoon because Korah Mo Aid, because I am not sure, I am positive that Tisha B'av will become a holiday. But until that time, and in order to make it a holiday, each and every one of us has to undergo the uh, Avelos, the mourning, the restrictions of, um, of Tish Ab'av. There is the Sudha hamavsekes, which is the final meal, which is eaten prior to the fast, and it's eaten uh, any time from Chatzos and An, Okay, on this coming uh, Wednesday until uh, Shkia, which is at approximately eight twenty. Now you're not going to eat until eight twenty. You're going to be. Uh, I'm sorry, Shkia is eight thirteen. You're not going to eat till eight thirteen. You're going to be smart enough, you know, to stop, you know, a few moments before. Okay, one eats first a regular meal, just like on erev Yom Kippur. The Torah was concerned that you should be healthy and that you've eaten in order that you can fast on Yom Kippur. Here too, one is to eat a regular meal before and recite Pirkas HaMazon. That meal is now over. And then ideally, go to the Beis HaKnesset for Mincha. If you have that opportunity, wonderful. If not, to have Mincha at home and then the Suda which means the dividing meal, is eaten. Number one, three or more people should not, talking about males, should not eat this meal together in order not to require a zimun. Right? This meal is not a happy one, and therefore we are not to sit together in a friendship, in a group environment. And even if three or more did sit together, zimun is omitted. And the meal should be eaten sitting on the ground, or sitting low, while you can still wear your shoes, and after the meal, you can still sit on a chair until sunset. Now let's understand something. I'm going to talk about the Seder plate, because when was the um, Seder this year? The first Seder was on a, that's correct, Wednesday night, and Thursday and Friday were the first days for us outside of Eretz Yisrael, but Thursday was Pesach, and that's the way it falls out of the calendar. So whereas on the Ka'ara, on the Seder plate, you had two different cooked foods, you had the roast shank bone, and you had the hard-boiled egg, symbolizing among the many different things that this is a... um, substantive meal, it's a suuda a On the night of Tisha B'Av, at this meal, we don't eat two cooked foods together. And therefore, all we have is minog Yisrael 1, a hard-boiled egg. As a mourner, when they come back from the cemetery, eats that hard-boiled egg, so do we. The minog is to dip it in ash. The minog is to eat it with a piece of round bread. And that's it. That is the suda ha If you want, tea or coffee can be drunk and accompany that meal. All right? And the uh, point is that if you plan to begin the fast... With the conclusion of this meal, fine. Then all the laws of Tisha B'Av begin except for the wearing of leather shoes and sitting on a chair, which is still permitted until the start of the fast, which once again is Shkiah in the New York area at eight thirteen. If one does not wish to accept the laws of Tisha B'Av immediately after the final the Sudamav Sekis, so Either explicitly say so or think this, and if you wish to brush your teeth, if you wish to take a drink, you can still do until uh, the fast begins at shkia. Okay, with tishabov starts at shkia on Wednesday evening, and it continues until Thursday night depending upon your community either 42 or 50 minutes after sunset on this coming Thursday. Eating, drinking, washing one's body, marital relations, and the wearing of leather shoes are prohibited on Tisha B'Av as they are as they are prohibited on Yom Kippur understandably Yom Kippur is biblical Tisha B'Av is not it is Medivrei Kabbalah which means from the prophets but it's very important to know so whereas if somebody had to eat on Yom Kippur So then we tell them that they eat with shi'urim, with certain measures, meaning you take a bite and wait, and then after seven, eight minutes, take another bite, and etc. Not so on Tisha B'Av. If one has to eat on Tisha B'Av, they do so without shi'urim. Same is true with drinking. But needless to say, if you have to drink, then drink, but don't eat. If one has to do both, by all means do. And that's a very important point, namely, listen to your doctors. If your doctor tells you not to fast, you are not to fast. Okay, the, the mikvah is closed this coming Wednesday night. And rinsing one's mouth on Tisha B'av, or using mouthwash is not permitted. A pregnant or nursing mother should try fasting. However, very important, no heroics. So whereas I'm speaking to those healthy individuals... And if you say to me, I've got a little bit of discomfort on Tisha I'm going to tell you, come on, you can do it. Not so the woman who is pregnant or nursing. A sick person, remember, does not have to fast and should not fast. And if there are certain medications that a person must take, then you must take them. Discuss with your doctor which ones you must and which one could wait until after the fast. If you have to take it with a little bit of water and perhaps put in a little bit of mouthwash with that water so that you'll go down, but without that even pleasant neutral taste of the water. A woman who gave birth during the past 30 days is not obligated to fast. One is not to wash or immerse in water any part of their body except. Upon arising in the morning, we wash what is known as negovasa, with a cup. We alternate right, left, right, left, right, left on our hands, till our knuckles. We rinse, shake the water off your fingers, and with your fingers a little bit moist, rub them through your eyes, a little bit on your face, and that's it. However, if a person gets dirty during the day, so they're not washing for the purpose of benefit but they're washing to cleanse themselves that they can do you're taking care of a baby and you get dirty by all means you can wash yourself and even before davening the proper procedure is to wash your hands before davening once again wash your fingers before davening after using the bathroom, we wash our fingers to the knuckles. After touching parts of a body that are normally c- covered. And if a person has to prepare food for somebody else during for children or an adult, by all means that you can wash the food on Tisha B'av and your hands are going to get wet, not a problem. <clears throat> if a person has to eat on Tisha B'av and they're even going to have bread, so you would wash your hands on the Tilas Yodayim Hamotzi and you would add the special paragraph that we add uh, in the Shmone Esrei before the bracha of Uv'nei Yerushalayim. One who perspires heavily can use deodorant on Tisha B'Av. All other beauty aids and lotions may not be applied. You can comb your hair on Tishabab. Sunbathing is forbidden on Tish Leather shoes or shoes covered with leather may not be worn on Tish Now even children, boys under thirteen, girls under the age of twelve, should listen carefully not wear leather shoes as well. From the letter of the law, boys under 13, girls under 12 are not obligated to fast. However, they should fast part of the day to recognize and realize that they are part of the Jewish community. One should not sleep in the usual fashion this coming Wednesday night, but rather in a less comfortable way If you usually sleep with two pillows, try one and if you only have one, try without. You are entitled to sleep. Just the idea is it's all in our mind to try to drive the fast and its restrictions home and meaningful. Until Chatzos on this coming Thursday on Tish Abav, one is to sit low on the ground or on a stool a chair less than 12 inches above the ground, all right? Now, the idea is that learning Torah on Tisha B'Av is prohibited. That's a strong word. Now what does that mean? We're to learn from this how important learning Torah should be to all of us. It is to be, as Dober HaMelech says, the lev. It literally gladdens the heart. I feel privileged to be able to study God's Torah. I learn something, I'm excited, I become happy therefrom. Now, the rabbis understood that the Jew is obligated to study Torah all the time. And therefore, the rabbis have said that just as we recite the, the uh, parts of our davening whereby the korbanos that are said every day, eizu rabbi omer, is all said as part of seder hayom, the day uh, recitation of prayer, so too the Talmud Torah of those sad parts of our tradition, namely parts of the Book of Eov, Sefer Yirmiyahu, the third third chapter in the Gemara Mo'i Katan, the fifth chapter of the Gemara Gitin, the Sefer Eicha, and even the Medrash Eicha, can be studied. And, I will add, as since this day is a day that we commemorate all future sorrows that occurred to the Jewish people, as we find in the 25th Kina, which we go from, specifically, mourning of the two Bate Migdash And now we go to approximately a thousand years later, to the time of the first Crusades in 1096, that unfortunately the Jewish communities of worms, mines, spire, were decimated and destroyed. So we have the 25th Kina. Of Moshi Ma'im, where we enumerate and we go through these tragedies, and we add a very important line in that Kina. We say, laHosif We are not permitted to add another day of mourning to our calendar. Why? Because we recognize and realize that it all stems from the destruction of the base Migdash, all of our sorrows, and therefore, appropriate reading and learning for Tisha B'Av is the extensive Holocaust material whereby we are able to connect Lo'Alenu with that very dark chapter. Of Jewish history, which we believe is a direct result of the Chorban Habayas. Ideally, no business should be conducted starting from Wednesday night, at least until Chatzos on. Uh, on thursday exchanging gifts is prohibited on tishabav and we are not to greet one another on tishabav we don't say good night wednesday night to people we don't say good morning it's a simple thing why mention it because the fact that i can't do it on tishabav is to remind us how important a good morning is, how important it is to greet somebody. And that, that I can do it on Tish Abav, plays and makes all the more of a significant um, factor upon us. For those that will be in the Beis HaKnesses on Tish Abav, so the Parochas, the covering of the Ark, is either removed or pushed aside starting Wednesday night before Meiriv until after Mincha on Tisha B'Av. I just want to uh, remind you that on Tisha B'Av morning we do not put on the talis and fill In Eicha, in the second chapter of Eicha, the Yom uh, tells us that, unfortunately, Hishlech Mishamayim Eretz Tiferes Yisrael He, Hashem, cast down from heaven to earth the glory of Israel. And the glory of Israel is, says the Brura our tefillin. Our practice is we do not um, put on our tefillin nor the talis in the morning we do put them on for mincha on uh, Tisha B'av afternoon. Finally, because Tisha B'av is on a Thursday this year, under normal conditions we would wait until midday of the 10th because the Beis HaMikdash burned until midday of the 10th to resume the activities such as washing clothes. However, you can wash clothing this year, Thursday night, because of, please God, Shabbos Nachamu, which is coming next Shabbos. Other restrictions are still there, meat and wine, until midday on, uh, please God, next Friday. I just want to share with you one powerful idea from the Sepurno, I told you the book of Devarim is a book of Musar. Moshe is giving Musar to the Jewish people. Now, we learn so much from how to give Musar that Moshe speaks about it in a roundabout fashion, telling them, reminding them of the place where the various um, sins were in between the enumeration of their wrongdoings, and Moses reminding them of the terrible sin of the Meraglim. The Torah tells us of Moshe. Eicha Moshe's crying out to God. Echah, es solibadi. I cannot do it by myself. Namely, I cannot carry on my shoulders torchachem masachem verivchem your quarrels your burdens and your argumentation now the Torah goes on to say that what does Moshe do Moshe appoints judges he appoints in chapter 1 verse 15 I appointed over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, and leaders of tens. Asks the Soporno, give out, leaders of tens, what's going on here? Does that mean that every ten Jews needed a referee to stop them from their quarreling? Oh my goodness, how can that be? And beyond that, Says the Sopurno, wait a second, these people had just witnessed an incredible metaphysical existence, a miraculous existence in the desert, the Ananekavod, Kavod, the Mun, and the Be'er. Moreover, they were given the good news that when you come into Eretz Yisrael, you're going to be able to defeat them without the strength of your army. But rather, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to do it all. Yes, you have to fight, but don't worry, you will win. When you have this in your mindset, there should have been no room for any argumentation. There should have been no room for any fighting. Oh oy, 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 I feel like crawling under the desk. There should have been no room for every ten people needing a referee. Stop fighting one with another, stop fight. So just remember, my friends, two things. If you're looking to fight, you'll always find what to fight about. But also remember, it takes two to quarrel. If somebody else begins and you don't respond, there will be no quarrel. There will be no fight. The Gemara. In Shabbos, 88b tells us, Aluvin, olvin. Those who are insulted, but do not respond with an insult. They hear the disgrace, but they don't reply. Unbelievable. For you, taught, the Pasuk says, They who love Him, Hashem, shall be as the sun going forth in its might. We are charged every year to read and listen to Parshas Devarim. We all want big things from Hashem. We each have our communal and personal listing. The first and foremost Hashem, please give us back the Beis hamigdash. With that, we have everything. We have that close, personal relationship with you. We have that incredible relationship with one another. So if we are asking for big things, there's only one response on our part. We have to be big. We have to be the big one. And each person knows that in their life and in their situation we're confronted with circumstances, obstacles and challenges. If we have to put Parshas Devarim in a very succinct term, says the Sapurno, two words, be big. Halavai, we go into Tisha B'av, with this mindset and as a result we should truly be Zolche that Korah Olaim Mo'ed we should celebrate please God in the future the 9th of Av Shabbat Shalom to all
1: J.M. and the A.M. Friday my thanks for Rabbi Yudin, of course Fridays 8.15 Rabbi Yudin with the uh, Torah portion of the week uh, here at J.M. and the A.M. it's Erev Shabbos Chazon it's Erev Shabbos Parshas Dvarim I thank you all for tuning in, being part of what I like to say is a an amazing uh, an amazing radio experience. Please tell your friends and relatives about it, especially as we start our unofficial start to the brand new season is next week, uh, meaning Friday morning Shabbos Nachamu. Uh, it's the unofficial start to our new season. Obviously, Labor Day would be the official start, but we are we're revving up, we're revving up for an amazing August. In fact, let me start backwards in terms of our programming. Oh yeah, we are revving up for an amazing August with a lot of contests, a lot of prizes, just a lot of fun as we get back into things uh between uh, uh between August 3rd and Rosh Hashanah. Uh so that's number 1. We will be doing our pre-Rosh Hashanah fundraiser with a really really nice offer this year. Um and a nice gift in my opinion that's coming to everybody's on our mailing list. So I think that'll be that'll be give everyone a boost as well. A lot of people have been supportive and have been there for us and I thank you and anybody who still wants to be supportive of us it's fjbunity.org fjbunity.org and um and you could also send a donation foundation for jewish broadcasting 551 grand street suite 3 new york city 1002 551 grand street suite 3 new york city 1002 um, so we are we are planning a, a a good month to say the least actually a month plus between uh, Nachamu and uh, and Rosh Hashanah. Uh, but working backwards on the, the week of uh, the week right after Nachamu, um, we will have the author of Peas, Love and Carrots, the brand new cookbook that everyone's going nuts about. Uh, Danielle Renoff's going to join us. I'll be on the 4th of August, 4th of August. She'll be with us uh, live from Israel on the 3rd of August. That's our Yom N.C.S.Y. show Monday morning. The 3rd of August will be our Yom Y show. Very different. Than when we travel to Israel <laughs> during the summer, very different. But we will be presenting a Yelman CSY show. Thank you, David Cutler and everybody at the OU who are getting ready for that. Um, there we go. Um, then as we move backwards, Thursday, keep in mind, Thursday is Tisha B'Av. We will have our Kino service here at JM&AM. On Wednesday morning, Abe Foxman. Uh, and I can't think of a better guest for Erev Tishibov, Uh somebody um, a high profile in the Jewish world who has the uh, family background that he has. We tend to concentrate on Jewish tragedies during the nine days, rightfully so. It's a period of time to do so. And he could tell us what it's like to uh, to be a child in really difficult circumstances. He'll, he has a new initiative uh, that he's announced with the Metropolitan Council on Jewish Poverty. We'll obviously discuss that, but we're going to discuss his history as well. That's Erev Tishabov. Uh, Monday, we have both the uh, L.E. Beer, United, uh, Mizra- United Mizrahi, United Hatzala, and of their own Paris of uh, World Mizrahi joining us this coming Monday. Matis will present a live presentation, a nine-days format, J.M. Sunday, this Sunday at 7 o'clock. Kolakavod to him. Avrami tomorrow night with Saturday Night Siegel with Horel Yezra Zwickler. Uh, I mean, we have a, um, a an amazing lineup, a lot of amazing things coming up. And again, I'm going to say what I said earlier. Um these three hours a day for the last thirty seven years, yes, on the eighteenth of September, Era of Hashanah I will celebrate my thirty-seventh anniversary. Um continue to prove to be uh inspiring, inspiring, um, uplifting and unique. Nobody else is doing this. It might seem to you that someone is. It's incorrect. Nobody else is doing this every day and live and for three hours. Nobody. With all that in mind, this is not a fundraising pitch. This is a different pitch. With all that in mind, I'm asking you to please spread the word among your friends, colleagues, relatives, business associates. Make them aware of our platform. The website, uh, the listen line. The app, obviously, primarily that's the best way to listen. The app, TuneIn Radio, has us. So if you want to go to your, um, if you want to go to your Alexa, you simply say, you know, Alexa, play Nahum Single Network on TuneIn Radio. It works most of the time. <laughs> I know sometimes it's frustrating. It works most of the time. So we're really we're everywhere, and and more and more uh, places are discovering us and presenting us and making us part of their. Uh, Apple Music has us. Ah, uh, just search Nahum Siegel. You'll find it. So it, it's really it, it is something that that can really be life changing for a lot of people, young and old. Please recommend us and spread the word. I think you'll be very happy that you did. I think you'll be very very happy that you did. Time to say good Shabbos. It's Journeys. It's J.M. in the A.M. Sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at Nahum and the Nahum Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Wraps up an amazing and incredible week for us here at JMM, and I thank all of you for tuning in and being part of it. Support us by going to FJBUnity.org, FJBUnity.org, and I thank you for that. And have a uh, wonderful Shabbos Chazon. Um, Monday morning, we're back starting at 6 a.m. And of course, great programming all weekend long. Make sure to keep it here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Have a fabulous and wonderful Shabbos and weekend. Till Monday, Nahum Siegel reminding you: remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.